from 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. Welcome to the Art of the Matter, made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you. Hello and welcome to The Art of the Matter. I'm Sharon Gamble. The music for today's show is courtesy of the Buscelli Wallarab Jazz Orchestra from their Heart and Soul album, available through Owl Studios at owlstudios.com. And I'm Travis DiNicola. Today I'll chat with clarinetist Sean Goodman about her new CD. I'll talk with Tim Hardy about Butler Shakespeare. And I'll find out about a collaboration between the opera and the Italian Heritage Society to honor Verdi. Plus, there'll be that calendar of events we call... What'll What'll we we do? do? All that and more right after the latest news from NPR. When people think of jazz clarinetists, Goodman is often the first name people think of. And though Benny Goodman is certainly a traditional favorite, there's another Goodman in town, so to speak. Jazz clarinetist Sean Goodman, no relation, has a new CD out with her playing some classic tunes with pianist Gary Walters. Travis DiNicola had Sean in to take a listen to her CD. Sean, welcome to Art of the Matter. Great to see you. Thanks. So, congratulations on your new and first CD, which is just excellent. Thank Uh, you. Let's start with uh, the title here, uh, Not Benny's Goodman. (laughs) It's a fun title. Yeah. So, well, you know, Benny Goodman, the famous swing clarinetist, Mm -hmm. big band and everything. Um, So, you know, my last name's Goodman, and it's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Benny Goodman, Sean Goodman, not Benny's Goodman. And uh, I try to pay, you know, respects to him in a way and um, yet go in a more modern direction. Sure. And no relation. No. no. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> it was funny. I was, I was listening to the CD the other night. In fact, I was just talking with, uh, uh, my dad was in the car and, and he's like, well, who is that? I said, Sean Goodman. He's like, any relation to Benny Goodman? <laughs> like, yeah, maybe if people think that, maybe they'll yeah. want to buy the album. There we go. <laughs> so, not Benny's Goodman. And it is, it's a, it's a great album and uh, so it's you and then also, uh, uh uh, Gary Walters right. uh, on piano, just the two of you throughout, which is just a really lovely, clean sound. Uh, tell me how this CD came about. Well, Gary and I started playing together, um, I think about 2010, mm-hmm. when I was actually working on my master's in classical clarinet performance at Butler University. Okay. And uh, so Gary teaches jazz piano there. Gary's just amazing. I mm-hmm. mean, if um, Gary's got a solo album out too that is just wonderful. People should check that out. But, um, Gary and I just started getting together once a week and kind of jamming and playing some stuff and realized we kind of had, you know, a nice sound and something that people might, you know, like to listen to. So, you know, we started doing some gigs and, um, mm-hmm. just decided finally to just, you know, lay down some tracks. So we went to, um, uh, Airtime Studios down in Bloomington. Okay. Uh, guy there, Chip Reardon. Uh, he did a great job really getting, um, you know, a real intimate sound out of the clarinet mm-hmm. that's, that's hard to get sometimes. Uh, but he mic'd it really well. And we went down there two days in March and recorded all the tunes, picked our favorites, and there's the album. So, uh, the first, uh, number on here is, is actually, as I was uh, saying to you earlier before we went on the air, uh, Loverman's my favorite on the mm-hmm. whole CD. I just, uh, really enjoy the interaction between, uh, you and Gary on this. Um, and you said that it almost didn't end up on the CD. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, 
there's a lot of good tracks on there, but and I'm always going to be my most critical. But mm-hmm. I thought, well, it's not it's not great, you know. I I wasn't even going to put it on there, and and um, then Gary said, no, you know, it it grooves, you know, people yeah. people like that. It's got a nice feel. We play well together, you know. And I said, okay, so I I kind of listened to him again, and and I was trying to figure out what song to make the first one, and he said, you should make Lover Man the first one, and I thought, ah. <laughs> okay, so I, I made it the first one, and then after I had sent it off to get it reproduced, I thought, ah, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have put that on there. I shouldn't have made it the first one, and and I've heard from more than one person actually that that's one of their favorites. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, let's take a little bit more of a listen to uh, to Loverman on uh, the CD, not Benny's Goodman, Sean Goodman with Gary Walters.
And we're back, and this is Travis DiNicola with jazz clarinetist Sean Goodman talking about her new CD. We were just listening to uh, the first track on it. Uh, what was your favorite uh, piece on this, Sean, when you were working on this? Or as you go back to it now, or you're just really glad you included it on the, on the CD. I'm really glad um, that I included Infant Eyes on there. Yeah, tell me about this song. Well, it's a song by Wayne Shorter. It's... I mean, Wayne Shorter's always been one of my very favorite um, saxophonists. And matter of fact, Wayne Shorter and uh, Herbie Hancock did an amazing uh, duo collaboration that um, has inspired me. One of the you know many duos that's inspired me to to play in the duo um, uh, you know collaboration. But um, mm-hmm. Wayne Shorter made the tune "Infant Eyes." I wasn't really very familiar with it, and then Gary actually introduced me to the tune in the first place. And, uh, it's just the chords and, and it's, it's slow, beautiful. The melody just flows. And I think on the clarinet, it just fits really nicely, you know, in that register. Mm-hmm. Gary plays the heck out of it. Yeah, I he mean, does. He's, yeah, you can't. I'm just so lucky that he is even willing to play with me because I feel like he just makes me sound so good, you know. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. So that's probably cool. my favorite tune. Well, let's, uh, let's take a little bit more of a listen to, uh, to Infant Eyes. back with Sean Goodman, jazz clarinetist. We're just listening to uh, Infant Eyes off of her new CD. Sean, you've got, you've got a concert coming up uh, November 10th. Yes. And that's uh, and you and Gary, right? Um, Actually, this one's going to be with my quartet. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this will be Manny De La Rosa will be playing piano. 
Um, let's see, John Crable will be playing drum set, and Joe Deal will be playing bass. Nice. Joe's awesome on yeah, bass. Yeah, um, So tell me about this concert. It's part of the uh, Second Sunday concerts? Yes, at the Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation. Okay. And I, I play there in a small chamber ensemble a few times a month, mm-hmm. but this is a special um, event that they do. Second Sunday of every month, they bring in uh, a featured group. Um, they have a youth orchestra coming in. They've got uh, a few choirs coming in. Um, I know Icarus played there last year. It's it's a big deal um, that they do, but uh, they've invited me to bring in a quartet cool. on Sunday, November 10th. It's at uh, 2 o'clock. Yeah, 2 p.m., and it's a free concert. Yes, and all ages. It's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. There aren't many opportunities for children, mm-hmm. especially people, you know, anybody under 21 to go and hear live jazz. So this is one of those few opportunities that I hope everybody takes advantage of. Excellent. And again, this is at the Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation up on um, uh, 60, uh, 6501 North Meridian Street. Uh, Sean, you're also involved with the S- Symphonic Youth Orchestra. Tell me a bit about that. Yes, the Symphonic Youth Orchestra of Greater Indianapolis. Uh, that's a summer youth orchestra program that I co-founded with my husband, Steve Goodman, who's a violinist and a music educator here in town. Basically, um, we run Monday and Thursday evenings uh, through June and the first part of July. We work with uh, musicians from the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. and college professors from all around the state. Um, the past four years now, I think... Um, we've had time for three come in and work with the kids. They're just awesome. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, uh, amazing! It's one of those things that uh, you know really inspires the kids. They see people not too much older than them really yeah. jamming and just loving what they do and doing it well. And I know it's inspired a lot of our kids. But basically, we perform uh, real orchestral literature, okay. and they rehearse and they do a couple performances. We typically do one at the Arts Garden and uh, one at Cathedral High School in their auditorium there. Um, so that's been a really awesome thing, and we will be going into our seventh summer season wow, this great. summer. Yeah. Now, if people want to get more information about the Symphonic Youth Orchestra of Greater Indianapolis, of course, you, they can go to the website. Absolutely. It's www.syogi.org. S-Y-O-G-I. Yes. So it's like S-Yogi. <laughs> yeah, org. some people say that. Yeah, it's Symphonic <laughs> cool. Youth Orchestra, Greater Indianapolis. Very cool. We just leave out the of. Nice. Hey, <laughs> so we're going to uh, wrap this up um, uh, listening to uh, one of the other tracks on here, Tenderly. Uh, tell me a bit about this one. Um. I always wanted to play this tune ever since I heard Sarah Vaughn sing it. Mm-hmm. Um, she has, in my opinion, the most amazing voice as a jazz vocalist. She really takes her voice and turns it into an instrument. And um, the flexibility that she has uh, in her timbre really, for me, connects to the clarinet. And so um, I really hear her singing it in mm. my mind as I'm playing it. And so yes. I hope that people hear it yeah. uh, as a sung piece as well. Sean, uh, where can we get your CD? How do we uh, get a copy of this? You can find my CD on iTunes. Okay. You can go on Amazon. You can go to my website, which is seangoodmanjazz.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you can't find it there, come to my concert, and you can buy <laughs> one. I'll even sign it. Cool. All right. Well, let's listen to uh, a little bit more of uh, Tenderly off your new CD. Sean, thanks so much for coming in to Thank Art of the Matter. Thank you, Travis.
Travesty Nicola with clarinetist Sean Goodman. Her new CD is titled Not Benny's Goodman and can be found at CD Baby. More information is at SeanGoodmanJazz.com and Sean is spelled S-H-A-W-N, so SeanGoodmanJazz.com. You're listening to The Art of the Matter on WFYI 90.1 FM Public Radio. Tim Hardy is just as scared of Shakespeare as you are. Really? Well, even though this British actor has a few decades of studying the bard under his belt, he always has to shift gears when starting work on a Shakespeare play. Tim has returned to Butler University's theater department to be the Crystal DeHaan Visiting International Theater Artist. And department chair Diane Timmerman brought him up to our studio for this conversation with Sharon Gamble. Tim, I understand that you have... Uh, a quote from Nick Heitner that you like to keep in mind as yeah. a director and as maybe as an audience member too. Mm, actually, very much as both. Because, you know, Shakespeare's done so much, um, but I think he still has that image of you've got to study for three months before you go and then listen and listen hard. And Nick Heitner, who is the director of the National Theatre in Britain, sort of top job really, there's a wonderful quote from him in a programme at the National where he says... In nearly every Shakespeare play I go to, I sit there for the first ten minutes and panic. I sit there and think, I'm the director of the National Theatre and I haven't got a clue what these people are talking about. (laughs) It's absolutely (laughs) true. And, you know, people pretend afterwards that they've understood every word and it's the classics and all that. And actually, it's our job to make it clear. And that's been the sort of bottom line with these lovely young actors at Butler, that I'm all over them like a rash, going, no, I didn't hear that word, no, I didn't understand it, to make it clear for the audience, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Um, Also, I think people, they're very sweet, they come, and they listen so hard that they can't hear a thing. The thing is, relax, sit back, and let it come at you, and you'll get it. So that's, I think, the sort of bottom line of coming here and doing Romeo and Juliet. The people sit back, enjoy it, and it's not hard work. It feels like Shakespeare, more than any other author ever in the history of the human universe, is just so daunting to people mm. because I, I think people do come in wearing that mantle of I'm going to see <laughs> something by someone who's so important. Mm. And I think that's what makes us sit there with clenched teeth trying so hard to listen. That's great advice to just relax. I think so. And, you know, he's been so lionized and he's sort of been sort of elevated, sort of godlike statue. And it's wrong. And the way to deal with him, all the successful productions that I've ever been in or directed, he's a writer who wanted to make a buck. <laughs> Which he was. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. You know, he ain't God. And in fact, before I came here, I read it and read it and read it, even though I know it well. And I thought, this is overwritten. There's too much of this. And I went to a great friend of mine who's a Shakespeare scholar for 30 years, um, who's at Cambridge. And he said, Good Lord, yes. This is a young writer showing off. Cut, cut, cut. I thought, great, and I have. I've cut it. It's really within two hours, probably less, actually. And it's not because of everything you're told about the American attention span and all that. It's Mm. just too long. And once, you know, you get to particularly the fifth act, you just want to get on with it. So it's actually (laughs) quite short. The text we have, we absolutely honour. Um, But there's not too much of it. We get on with the story, you know. What great permission you're, you're... Scholar friend gave you. Well, he's right, you know, because he treats Shakespeare as a bloke who wrote, not as God, 
and he often got it wrong. I mean, he wrote some terrible plays as well as <laughs> some great ones, you know. And you don't actually kind of take him off the shelf and dust him down and worship him. You get in there and decide what's good. So it strikes me that if I were one of your students at Butler, I would assume, well, you 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 speak Shakespeare's language from his soil, so therefore mm. you you have a, a, a special connection to Shakespeare. Do they feel that you understand better, not because you're experienced, not because you're a director and a professional and an actor, but because you're British? Yes, but I'll tell you what, they've done the computer studies in the last five years, and I've found out why. I personally love doing Shakespeare with Americans. That's what I especially... I'm on the faculty of the Royal Academy in London, which is our sort of Juilliard, you know, it's our top drama school. Right. And uh, uh, we have two courses a year for Americans only who come to us from all over the States. And I love doing Shakespeare with them, and I found out why. They've done the computer studies now... And they found out that the English Shakespeare heard and wrote for, where in the world are we nearest to that? In Kentucky, on the Appalachian Trail. Really? Yep. Where they have these apparently rural communities that have not changed in decades and decades, and there's a particular twang and a lilt. And that's what he wrote for. And when I've done Shakespeare over here, it all comes alive in a way that it actually doesn't when you speak Brit. So you're closer to it than we are. Diane Timmerman is nodding yes. <laughs> you, and you have done, your resume is plenty, uh, plenty full of Shakespeare. Um, yeah. what, what, what was your motivation to invite this gentleman to, to come be in residence? Well, Tim Hardy is here with us for the third time. He's directing his third production for us at Butler Theater. And contrary to what he just said, actually, <laughs> he as a British person and also as an artist and a teacher and a director has special insight into Shakespeare. And so our students learn so much from him. The community learns a lot from him. He's doing a, a workshop for professional actors. He meets with school children as well. So he's an excellent resource. And, and he brings all of his years of experience to bear in the rehearsal hall and in the classroom. And our students are always the richer for having worked with him. Mm -hmm. He's he's blushing a little bit. He's like, eh, well, uh. <laughs> all in a day's work. Yeah. We've been rehearsing that for days. Yeah. Well done. Well played. No, I, I, I tell you what I think I do bring, and that is we. Uh, there, people are always trying to get me at it and saying, "What's the difference between English and American actors?" And I refuse to go down there. Good is good is good. Sure. Uh, but we sort of in our bones inherit a literature that's been alive for hundreds of years, and English actors from the beginning are taught that you serve the text. You don't look at the text and go, woo, here's a nice vehicle for all my magical things inside me. You come to rehearsal with nothing and see what the text demands of you. So I think what the students get from me is that it's the text, the text, the text, and how you can serve that rather than how it can serve you. But when you mix you know, the American facility for um, getting into your own emotions, which Americans have a wonderful through line to, but with the discipline of actually serving the text rather than just being over-emotional. That combination is, you know, one of the reasons why, it, when it works, is really exciting. Is there a, do your students have a sense that Romeo and Juliet is more accessible because mm. they they get the story, the, the lead characters are so. actually younger than they are? I think that's right. In fact, Romeo and Juliet are the two youngest characters in the whole play. 
and they are, you know, very young. I mean, 14 then is probably 18, 19 now. Sure. But it, it is about young people being destroyed by older people's prejudice. So, yes, they they do relate to it. But, it, you know, it is, again, only words on a page. And Shakespeare spends a lot of his time in his play saying, I wish we could show you this or that, but we can't. Well, we can now. And so I'm very keen on helping the text with all the modern equipment we can. For example? I, well, I sat down uh, when I was directing Henry V, actually, at, Rod, at the Royal Academy, uh, with the the best student for sound that we've had in 10 years, I think. And I said, how do you fancy a gig? She said, great. And we spent four days in the recording studio mm. creating the sound for this production, mm. which is not just music, but every sound effect you could ever want that helps the text. And, and wonderful Kathy, who's head of lighting, there's going to be, I think, over 100 lighting cues. And we have all this these modern ways in which to make theatre... You know, sexy, exciting. Sure. Helping the text along rather than just saying the damn stuff. How do you get students to channel? I'm not sure that's the right word. How do you get students to create characters who are 10, 20, 30, 40 years older than they are? That's a very interesting question. And what you don't do is play inverted commas, old, yeah. you find inside you what the character has and you play that. And it's extraordinary how <clears throat> you can play someone much younger than you or older and your body changes shape as you find it. You come from within, is the answer to your question, and find that inside you um, which is relevant to the character. Um, Logan, who plays Capulet, I know what a difficult part it is because I've played it in London, He's fantastic because he has such weight and presence that you, you think of him as a middle-aged head of a very powerful family. And he's, he's a student, but once he steps on stage, he's not a student anymore. You get it from within. How did you know acting and <clears throat> then teaching acting was your career path? Oh, well, um, I was at a very high-achieving academic school um, all tradition. We celebrated the 450th anniversary of its foundation while I was there. Wow. Yeah. It's called St. Paul's, and it was it was for the intelligent sons of poor folk, founded <laughs> in 1509 in the crypt of St. Paul's Cathedral. It's now for the intelligent sons of very rich folk, and <laughs> I was lucky to get there. Things change. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was lucky to get there, and we had a half scholarship, which helped. Um, and it was about academia, and I was in an environment where if I really, really worked hard, I was average. Wow. Except they one day said, we're doing this thing called Twelfth Night. Would you like to be Antonio the Sea Captain? I said, not at all, because it was actually at the same time that I was due to play cricket, which was my passion. <laughs> oh, it still is, actually. And they said, well, yeah, but it might interest you to know, because it was an all-boys school, that yeah. we're going to have real girls playing the girls' parts. Oh, <laughs> there's some motivation. And, How old and were the, you? Uh, oh, I don't know, 15, 16. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the uh, artistic profundity of why I became... <laughs> Um, did you did you like acting? Well, I, quite, I actually started? quite enjoyed saying this stuff. I didn't know what it meant, mm. Antonio the Sea Captain, but I sort of enjoyed saying it. It rolled up, and it felt nice, because I did more singing in those days, and it felt a bit like that. But then afterwards, people who said I was deeply average at everything else said, <laughs> you're good at that. 
and it's very attractive being good at something. Sure. And that's how I started. And in the end, um, in my final semester there, was when we celebrated this 450th anniversary, and the Queen came with the Duke of Edinburgh to watch us do stuff. It was meant to be an ordinary day in the life of St. Paul's, and we rehearsed it for about six months. I'm sure. <laughs> and everything was going on. It was madness. The choir was doing, they were doing chemistry exhibitions, the cricket people. Were, so I turned up about six times in different guises, you know. <laughs> but then they came to watch us rehearse a scene from a, a, a very heavy play called Comus by Milton. It had to be Milton because he's an old boy at the school, you see. Uh-huh. So it was either that or Samson Agonistes, and we escaped that. Um, and by that time, I was playing Comus and going, wow, this is the one thing I seem to be really good at. To my parents' horror, of course. <laughs> um, they, and then they said, well, we'll do you a deal. RADA is the top drama school. Try for that and no other. And if you can't get in there, you forget it. <gasps> so that's what happened. And I auditioned for RADA and got in and slowly fell in love with acting. But it took a while. Your parents forgave you? Just about. <laughs> well, actually, I'll tell you what happens. It's like all parents. Um, once they see you on the telly and doing something, you know, before millions of people. Sure. Or at the Royal Shakespeare Company or something, then all is forgiven. Yeah. yeah. So it's one thing to be uh, a great practitioner. It's another to want to pass that on to other people. I think it's actually normal. In most, you know, careers, you get to a point when you plow back to young people joining the firm or whatever what you know <clears throat> poor actors they're just the hired hands all their life and I could never ever have done that there comes a point when you want to put into effect what is your passion what is your experience and you know one of the reasons uh, I, I love directing now it's because I'm the guy who decides whether she wears the gloves in act three or not I'm the guy who decides what this whole production is going to look like and you know, I've been thinking about this for months while doing all my other stuff in my studio in South London. But it's extraordinary because what I imagined is actually coming to be. And the students are knocking themselves sideways to do what I want. And so are all the technical staff, you know, uh, Glenn who builds the set and everything. It's just all you couldn't ask for more. And that's a real, it's scary, but it's a real thrill because it's my shout from beginning to end. And if it's no good when we open, it's nobody's fault but my own. And that's the kind of responsibility that most people get when they become senior, you know. So I could never have been just a hired hand all my life. Sharon Gamble with Butler University's Crystal DeHaan visiting international theater artist Tim Hardy and department chair Diane Timmerman. You can see Butler Theater's production of Romeo and Juliet November 13th through the 17th at the new Schrott Center for the Arts. Learn more at butler.edu. Hey, Travis. Yes, Sharon? We've had such great guests today. We have only time for a very short calendar that we call What Do We Do? do? Still great stuff, though. You know, uh, the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra is having their Student and Teacher Appreciation Day coming up on November 17th at the Hilbert Circle Theater. And this is a really cool way for students and tutors to go, and teachers, to go enjoy the symphony as part of their Lily Classical series. And if you show your uh, valid school ID, you can get $10 tickets to the Sunday concert. And it's featuring uh, Debussy and Ravel and lots of other great uh, 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 music 
and students are encouraged to wear their high school or college gear. So it's it's high school or college students for this concert on the 17th, and that will be a great afternoon at the Hilbert Circle Theater. Fantastic. You still have time. Even if you're hearing us Saturday morning, you still have time to take in a few Spirit and Place events. Uh, fit a few more of those into your uh, schedule. You can find out more at spiritandplace.org, but I want to um, call special attention to this Sunday, the closing conversation, a wonderful tradition, 5.30 to 7.30 at Central Library's Clues Auditorium. It's free. Uh, in particular, if you're a fan of Scott Jones, yep, that's Scott Jones, or Sarah Fisher, you want to check that out. That's this Sunday, 5.30, Central Library. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, if you're already thinking about doing some holiday shopping, some great stuff going on at the State Fairgrounds coming weeks, right now the Christmas Gift and Hobby Show is going on. Uh, next week, the Junior League Holiday Mart, which is always a great event. And then uh, coming up after that, the International Festival at the State Fairgrounds uh, from November 26th to the 24th. Hey, Clues Hall continues its very strong 50th anniversary season this Saturday night. John Lithgow in a one-man show called Stories by Heart. What an amazing actor and a great chance to hear him do something a little bit different. Um, and then also coming up on Friday the 15th at Clues, the Swingle Singers. They've been around for decades. Of course, their personnel have turned over several times, but they are amazing. If you don't Say know that name them. again, Sharon. Swingle Singers. The Swingle Singers. Go to YouTube <laughs> If you're not familiar with them. <laughs> nice. Well, that is all the time we have this week, but we will be back next week on that calendar we call What Do We do? do? You're listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in Indianapolis and central Indiana. Your hosts are Sharon Gamble and Travis DiNicola. If your arts organization has an event or activity of which you think we should be aware, please contact us at least three weeks in advance. You can write us at The Art of the Matter, care of WFYI, 1630 North Meridian Street, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46202. Or you can email us at artofthematter at wfyi.org. You can also hear The Art of the Matter on wfyi.org. The Indianapolis Opera, in partnership with the Italian Heritage Society of Indiana, will be presenting Viva Verdi, Giuseppe Verdi's greatest hits, on Sunday, November 17th at the Basile Opera Center. This is part of a celebration of the composer's 200th anniversary and the 2013 Year of Italian Culture in the United States. Travis DiNicola spoke with the opera's artistic director, James Carraher, about the show. Jim, welcome back to Art of the Matter. Always great to see you. Thank you. My pleasure. So, you know, with a name like Dina Cola as my last name, I was, of course, somewhat intrigued when I heard you were doing this concert that's celebrating Italian culture. Absolutely. It's a it's a great vehicle, both operatically, just because of Verdi's, you know, his the number mm-hmm. of operas and the popularity of all of them, great tunes. And then you add that it's the year of Italian culture in America, so there's that to celebrate. That's pretty so cool. So the two groups got together and thought this was a, a fun project. What a great idea. Yeah, I, I was not aware of, uh, in, until I started learning about your concert, that 2013 was the, this official year of Italian culture in the United States, which is great. And um, so we've got the Italian Heritage Society of Indiana that uh, is partnering with you on this. Have you guys worked together before? Or is this kind of a new thing? Yeah, officially, no. Two summers ago, Italy was the, the country that was chosen for the state fair. Mm-hmm. And we were together for about two weeks in the Italian or the International Pavilion. They had their desks set up right next to the stage where we were performing off and on. Sure. And we got to talking to each other, and we were singing this kind of program mm-hmm. spread out through the two weeks. And they said, wouldn't it be fun to do something on purpose together? Yeah. So then we got together afterwards, and it 
originally started out, it was going to be a, a history of Italian opera from huh. Monteverdi up through Verdi and Puccini. Okay. And then somewhere along the way, it dawned on us that this was Verdi's 200th birthday. Yeah. So everything else went out the window, and we you know, regrouped and decided this was a, a better way to you know, share an event. What a neat idea. And of course, you know, there are other countries that have operas, but uh, but Italy is home to great, great opera, and, and especially Verdi. So uh, this is, I think, a really neat partnership. Yeah, I think so. And it, my first company, my first job in opera was with a sort of, I won't say an Italian company because mm-hmm. it was in upstate New York, but it was run by Italians, and most of my first operas were Italian. So that's sort of a sentimental favorite of mine. And sure. Verdi uh, was probably the one composer I learned the most of early on, and Rigoletto was the first thing I ever conducted, so I have a, a sentimental soft spot for Verity. And so this performance will be, it's sort of a, a greatest hits, right? Right. Um, yeah. uh, so how is that How is that done, or how is that staged? Um, it'll be at the Basile Opera Center mm-hmm. in the, the old sanctuary, so it's a little bit like a recital, and we'll have a narrator to tie in Italian history and culture to the different pieces. Nice. And then there'll be six different singers, uh, the opera chorus, and a lot of hit tunes that people recognize, yeah. you know, Libiamo and uh, La Donna Immobile, and you know, things that whether you know opera or not, you'll, you, you, you kind of know that song. There are tunes that you hum, hum along yeah. with, whether you know the, the words or not. And then a few off-the-beaten-path pieces, and then just a couple of fun things, the Italian national anthem both the official mm. and unofficial. One's mm-hmm. operatic and one isn't. Okay. So we'll compare the two and say why one was chosen over the other and the history behind the two and just a few things like that. But a, a nice variety of known, unknown, pretty, religious, theatrical. It, it, it should be a fun It sounds fun. Variety. It sounds like it'd be a good introduction maybe for people who aren't as uh, familiar with opera or maybe don't go to the opera as much. Uh, yeah, I think so. It's, it's just like you, you were just saying, it's one hit tune after another. So if if something doesn't appeal to you, two, three minutes later, we're going to be doing something else. So sure. It's everything, as I said, from choruses to the Rigoletto Quartet to duets. And there's a really wonderful aria from Forza Delestino for soprano mm. and male chorus. And it's something you don't hear every day, but that's part of it. So it's a nice variety. And the, the nice thing about the Basile Opera Center, yeah. it's a small space. Mm-hmm. So everyone who comes will be right up close. And I think one of the appealing aspects of opera is the athleticism of it, hearing people without amplification, and to be in a reasonable size room, but not terribly large, and hear mm-hmm. these folks cut loose right up close, I sure. think is going to be part of the fun of it. So how is the, the, the new, that space for you, the Basile Opera Center, working right. out for you? It's phenomenal. This will be... I mean, you still, obviously, some productions are done uh, at Clues. At Clues, right. Mm-hmm. The bigger ones. The bigger ones, but... And we just finished a Three Penny Opera production mm-hmm. at, there, and we have a large rehearsal hall, which uh, for the Three Penny was turned into a like a black box. Okay. We put up risers and seating and build a stage. But this performance is going to be in what was the old sanctuary okay. of the Greek Orthodox Church. So there's a what had been up front in the church is where the, the stage will be, and a grand piano down front, and then everyone else will sit in the congregation. And the location of the center, you're uh, sort of just off of... It's 40th Street in Pennsylvania. Yeah, okay. So, so it's in the Meridian Kessler in that In that neighborhood there, kind of uh, yeah. like behind, uh, maybe people know where like the United Way building is. Right. It's, it's, matter of fact, it's right behind there. Mm-hmm. In Tarkington Towers, It's mm-hmm. we see that from the driveway, so it's just a block 
East had to stop and think. Very good. So, uh, you know, the, so the time on this, it's going to be uh, performed on Sunday, November 17th, uh, Sunday afternoon uh, from 2 to 4 p.m. So I'm thinking that's actually kind of a great time because you could either maybe get lunch or maybe even better get a, a big Italian dinner right afterwards. Right. Absolutely. You yeah. Know? And and at the Make end, it a full day. as part of the birthday celebration, there's going to be a Prosecco toast. Oh, nice. So we'll be passing out, you know, a glass of bubbly to everyone in the audience. So that's it'll be, a, you know, a way to... Ease into cocktail hour if, if that's your pleasure on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. But <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so, so tell me a little bit more about um, how the uh, the Italian Heritage Society of Indiana has has gotten involved with this and is partnering on this with you. Um, it, it started out as I said, the the ladies sitting at the table at the mm-hmm. state fair. But we have a a friend. Uh, her name is Carol Fanzi, mm-hmm. who's written a, a book. Yeah, uh, Stone, uh, Stone Cutters Aria, Aria. Mm-hmm. right. So we've talked to her and done some programs with her, and she's one of the, the three ladies who spearheaded their side of things. Sure. And so there's already the operatic tie mm-hmm. into between the book and Carol's interest, and they all come to the opera and are subscribers and very nice you know, patrons, and they like what we do. And mm-hmm. you know, one lady sits right down front, right behind me, so I turn around and there she is, <laughs> you know, fairly often. So we have a we've had an unofficial, you know, relationship now, sure. off and on both through programs with Carol and, as I said, audience members, and, mm-hmm. and then it just evolved. Well, that's great. That's great. And uh, now, will they have um, information there um, uh, at the opera about perhaps joining or learning more about the... Yeah, I'm sure there'll be tables set up both to you know, sell season subscriptions and mm-hmm. tickets for us for future events sure. and memberships for them. Mm-hmm. So it's it's meant to be a, a fundraiser, raise awareness you know, type of afternoon for both organizations. Uh, Excellent. So, well, tell me what you also have following this, because this is a sort of a one-day concert, uh, again, on Sunday the 17th for the uh, Viva Verde, uh, but, of course, the opera continues on. Right. Um, lots more Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, following, actually, very closely on the, the heels of this, uh, Amal and the Night Visitors, again, back at the Basile, but in mm-hmm. the other room. Okay. And we produced it last year, and it was almost sold out, every performance, so we're going to And you're doing that right, uh, right before Christmas, right? Right. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do that again, and hopefully if it does well a second year in a row, it may turn into one of these traditions sure. like the Nutcracker or yeah. Yuletide or Messiah mm-hmm. and the operatic version of that. So then, again, it's John Carlo Minotti, so more Italian, nice. which is you know, something we can you know, little theme here. talk mm-hmm. about while we're going. And then after that, in March, we're doing a Puccini opera that's not done all that often, Girl of the Golden West. Yes, I've, I, I'm not familiar with this opera, but I've heard a couple people in town that I know that are really excited that uh, that you're producing this. Yeah, it, it's a little different. I mean, it's not different. It, it's obviously Puccini, but it, mm-hmm. it's cowboys. Cowboys okay. and Indians and the American West. So it has that tie to it, but it, it, it's gorgeous hmm. music. And it, it's early enough on that it, it sounds a little bit like Tosca and a little bit like okay. several other things, uh, Manon Lascaux, but still different. When when did Puccini create that, do you know? Oh gosh, I should That's uh, a tough question. Well, but I I'm, I'm just in, I mean curious cuz Yeah, I mean I mean with that that cowboy theme and around Tosca 1908, 1904, yeah. Huh. I can not matter of fact that's one of the odd things about the season. It wasn't chosen with this in mind, but every one of the four uh, productions we're doing this year is a 20th century piece of some sort. Hmm. So from Kurt Weill that we just mm-hmm. finished and the Minotti sure. and then the Puccini Lands in the 20th century, and we're ending up with our first Britain piece, Albert Herring. Oh, great. In May, which yeah. is sort of appropriate. Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, often people think of opera maybe as being a little bit older and stuff, but it's great to see that there are so many, in fact, classics from the 20th century. Right, and it, you wouldn't think of Puccini mm-hmm. as 
spitting that bill, but I mean, he, he did cross so, over. Do you know where he, his interest in cowboys developed? Uh, he he just had a, a fascination with things foreign. Yeah. Mean, he liked butterfly, mm-hmm. and he, that has you know, uh, Japanese culture. And yeah. the, his men on Lascaux dealt with coming to the United States. I and mean, one of the funny things about that is hmm. they were exiled to the desert in New Orleans, in Louisiana, okay. which he got wrong because there isn't one. <laughs> so he didn't always, right. you know, didn't always get his get facts right, straight. But, but hmm. he was just fascinated by you know, foreign cultures and I think it's things American at that yeah. point, at the turn of the century. Very interesting. Yeah. It, and it, it's a gorgeous piece. I mean, you think of cowboys and Indians, but mm-hmm. it's a very sentimental, it's a love story, but it's the sort of the hardships and the camaraderie and of the the miners out west and this one woman who sort of was you know, pretty and attractive to all of them but sort of mothered all of them so she hmm. was and then the, the the tug of war between the baritone and the tenor over whose effect sure we're going to win out so it's got any and all of that so it's a really really neat piece but there's a lot of sentimentality to it which you wouldn't expect out of cowboys and indians hmm. but that's where the the italian I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. Kicks in. Yeah. And it, as you said, it, it's not performed all that often. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem is it's just a huge cast. Is it? The, the, the main singers, they're very large roles in it. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find people who can sing over a large orchestra and just negotiate the roles. And then below that, besides the all-male chorus, which hmm. is a, a, a difficult That's a little bit of a source. challenge to cast, I bet. Or, but then there's yeah. a... If, I can't think, probably 15 to 18 small roles, hmm. all male, everything from minors wow. to you, you just cowboys yeah. out there. And there's two women, the Minnie, who's the, the female <laughs> heroine, who is the girl of the Golden West. Mm-hmm. And then there's one Indian squaw okay. who has a, a short scene at the beginning of the second act. But other than that, it's all men it's all, male. all night long. Wow. So Interesting. It's, it's a, a casting yeah. difficulty, but we've got so many good men in town okay. between local singers, people who live in the area who want to be part of this. And mm-hmm. it's a production that was first done with the Nashville Opera. Mm-hmm. So the, the uh, stage director was also the producer down there, and it comes with projections and scenery and costumes. Nice. So it's it's all been tried and yeah, true and figured well, out. So. Jim, let me ask you about this, because, I mean... It, the opera here in Indianapolis, I think you guys have done a, a remarkable job in some difficult times of sort of, you know, being lean, being efficient, you know, let's say, you know, here right. with, with this opera that you're able to get uh, scenery and other pieces from another opera. Uh, you've, you know, been able to do things like having some of these smaller shows like the uh, the Viva Verdi uh, one day and, and having the two spaces, actually three really to work with, with the Basile Center as well as uh, the work you do at Clues. Um, but a lot of people are talking about, you know, there, there's concern about opera companies all around the country closing. Um, I, and I know it's maybe not a fair direct, uh, question to ask the artistic director, but uh, what's the future here looking like? It's it's actually very fair. And it, as you said, there are a lot of companies that have gone under you know, in the last yeah. five, ten years. And the ones that are hanging on, even the large companies are doing smaller productions like our Basile mm-hmm. Center Productions. They've cut back numbers, and some of what they still are doing are smaller chamber works. Which I enjoy. I mean, it opens up a whole new area of sure you know, production that normally for big theaters would be ignored. So there's there's a wealth of you know, material out there that I think now can be delved into, mm. and it makes it sort of fun to plan and look for things that some fit. different opportunities. But in spite of the hard times, I actually see opera growing you know, between the metropolitan movie versions. Mm-hmm. You know, there was just a wonderful 
them in WFYI broadcast the Moby Dick yes. a couple of nights ago mm-hmm. from San Francisco, and I've had friends, Memphis Robert Orth, who sings here a lot, mm-hmm. was one of the, the leading characters, and that's what was fun to see Bob Neat. on yeah. TV. Yeah. And it, it's a, a new opera that's being produced, so everything from you know what you see on PBS to the movies, and just the way the art form is changing. For me, it's you know one of the, the classical art forms that's evolved the most. Hmm. You know, symphony is still players sitting on a stage, whether they still wear tails or not. But it's the the way it's done is still pretty much the way it has been forever sure. and ever. And dance is sort of the same. There's modern dance and traditional ballet, but opera's gone from stand and sing. You know, if it's a 300 pound, 50 year old singing <laughs> a, you know, a Madame Butterfly who's supposed to be 15 and tiny. Right. It, once upon a time, that didn't matter, but now with the TV versions and people who can do these things. There seems to be a lot more attention to the theatricality of the it. The theater of it's really come to the fore, and it, it, I tell everybody that one of the first two questions I get asked when singers come to town now is, you know, where's the health food store and where's the gym? Hmm. So there are folks out there who can approximate what you really look for on the theater side yeah. of opera these days. So there's that element, and the technology that's available now in opera, you don't have to build whole cities and buildings. And, you know, when you do Bohem, you don't have to build all of downtown Paris. Right, because you can use projections. Projections and, and a little imagination. Yeah. So everything from big companies to little companies, the, the way you see opera, the way it's produced, the way it's performed is entirely different than it was even you know, 25, 30 years ago when mm-hmm. I first started doing all this. So. I think it's necessitated it, changes, but some that sound very positive. Yeah, and it makes it exciting yeah. you know, these days of, you know, computers and visual aids and video games. That's the way younger folks, if we're going to get them hooked mm-hmm. and interested, is to do it in a way that they're comfortable and can get excited sure. about seeing. So while I still love the old, mm-hmm. old-fashioned ways of doing things, but you have to keep up with the times to keep people interested in going. And I see our audience actually getting younger every time we produce something, which I find very encouraging. Travis DiNicola with the opera's artistic director, James Carraher. Viva Verdi takes place on Sunday, November 17th at the Basile Opera Center. More information is available at IndieOpera.org. IndieOpera.org. Thanks for joining us today. The music for today's show is courtesy of the Baselli Walrab Jazz Orchestra, from their heart and soul album available through Owl Studios at owlstudios.com. Please listen to The Art of the Matter next week, Thursday at 8 p.m. and Saturday at 7 a.m. when I'll get a preview of White Christmas at Footlight. I'll talk with author Barb Shoup about what's going on at the Indiana Writers' Center. And I'll get a look at the IMA's new design galleries with Charles Venable. Plus, we'll have our calendar of events we call... What What do we do? do? So please listen next weekend to The Art of the Matter here on 90.1 WFYI. Public Radio. You've been listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in central Indiana and Indianapolis. Your hosts are Sharon Gamble and Travis DiNicola. Today's show was edited by Melissa Davis and produced by Travis DiNicola. The Art of the Matter, made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you.